Alright, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of the 411 Ground and Pound MMA Podcast. Uh, we are your weekly look into the wide, wacky, wonderful world of mixed martial arts. And just want to thank you very much for tuning in. My name is Robert Winfrey, I'm your host. 2022 is up and running. So that's a good thing, I suppose. Uh, on the agenda this evening, last night, UFC on ESPN 32, their first event of the year. Only nine fights, a bunch of fights fell out, some of which I was looking forward to. And we got a whopping two finishes on the whole card. Now, that's not a guarantee of fight quality per usual, but it's it's never good when you get that many decisions. I mean, there, there's a finite amount, even if they're all barn burners, you still can get burned out on those. I mean, look no further than UFC 269, which... <laughs> had back-to-back fights that were, like, legitimately fight-of-the-year contenders, you know, depending on how far down you on that list you want to go. Uh, one of them might have won, depending on who you're talking to, that being Michael Chandler and uh, Justin Gagey. Right after that, we had a darn good fight. Um, oh, why are the names escaping me? You had Billy Quarantillo and... Oh, who'd he fight... It didn't make my top five, so I kind of kind of slipped my mind. Hang on. Um, is that not a 269? Was that 268? I think it was. My mistake. Uh, Burgos. Billy Quarantillo and Shane Burgos. Uh which was another one that was just a crazy fight that unfortunately didn't quite get the the roar of the crowd behind it the way you'd expect because they were all still trying to recover from Gaethje and Chandler doing what they did. Uh, it was... You, you can still get burned out like that is kind of the point. So you do need some of those breaks in between. You like a good finish every now and then. Uh... And we just didn't have that. And some of the fights were good. I don't mean to... I'm certainly not going to imply otherwise I'm going to go over all of them. But just that finishing rate being attached to a card is just not the best thing. So we also have coming up UFC 270, which we will be previewing here. That's, uh, that's a pretty... That's a spicy card. That is a spicy card, especially our top couple of fights. Two title fights. So be on the lookout for that. And to the extent that we have news, there's a little bit of news. I think the big thing is, uh, the thing I have listed here, and then I'm going to check Twitter, obviously, before this show is done recording. But Henry Cejudo and Dana White are throwing barbs at each other. So we'll kind of touch on that, uh, such as it is. And, yeah, at the moment, that's kind of it. So... Let's go ahead and jump into things. Uh, oh, sorry, before I do that, if you would, please, uh, I've mentioned this before, but the last few, last couple of months for 2021 were a bit of a shocking spurt of growth for the, the podcast here. So on whatever platform you happen to be using, please continue engaging with the product. Like, comment, subscribe, rate, share, tell a friend, write a review. Whatever you're allowed to do, as much as you're allowed to do it, it helps tremendously. So, I wanted to thank you all for that again, and we're going to try to keep the mad, uh, keep the momentum going. 
as the new year begins. So thank you again. And I remember to get that out of the way on time this time around. Yay me. All right. Enough of that. Enough of the shenanigans. UFC and ESPN 32. Main event. This isn't going to take too long uh, for most of this card. Main event. Calvin Cater defeats Giga Chikadze via unanimous decision. 250-45s, 150-44. I was 50-45. I don't object to 50-44. It comes down... I think the 10-8 would have been the last round, and I think 10-8 in the last round for Cater is acceptable. So... How did I get this one so very, very wrong? Well, I'd object to the notion that I got it completely wrong. I did pick Chikadze, but there's a couple of things about this that uh, need to be addressed. First of all, I, th I said one of the big questions was I don't know how Cater's going to look after what Max Holloway did to him. Turns out pretty darn good. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how he... Look, he took enough time off to really let himself heal, which I think helped tremendously. But it's also not wrong to ask that kind of a question after what happened to him. When I say he was on the end of a historic beating, I, I mean that. Like, Max, land, Max set records with how many strikes he landed on him. That's what I mean. Like, that was five rounds. There was a serious discussion. I remember this because I was kind of calling for it. Um, in, that, in that Cater Holloway fight, that Cater's corner should have stopped that. Uh, I think like between rounds, uh, like between rounds three and four, and then again between rounds four and five, there was serious questions about whether or not he should have been allowed to go back out because there was no point. That fourth round in particular, I seem to recall, was bad. Like he got badly tuned up in that round, and he took a year, uh, 364, 365 potential days, but. Uh, he rebounded well enough here. He looked pretty darn good. Not great. Uh, I shouldn't say not great. That, that's a little bit of a disservice to what he did. He still seems to have some of the habits that I thought were exploitable and some of the ones that Giga Chikadze did exploit. But he did not look gun-shy. He did not look slow. He did not look like his, uh, his chin had been seriously diminished. I mean, look, you can only take so many of the shots that he took from Max, and it, it had an impact. It just wasn't as observable as, again, that was one of the big questions. How observable would it be? Because sometimes you take a beating like that, and you're just never the same. And kudos to Kata for coming out and basically being the same. Uh I want to, one of the things I don't think I gave Cater enough credit for in the preview, and he certainly stepped it up in this fight, but Cater is one of the best elbow users in uh, the UFC right now. One of the better ones in all of the sport, to be quite candid. He's good about using them when he's trying to close distance. He'll close distance with an up elbow. Uh, he'll throw the elbows in close if he doesn't want to throw hooks, or you're a little bit too close for that. He'll just swing elbows at you. Uh, he's really good about using them. And that's something that a lot of people struggle with. He carved up Giga Chikadze, man. Chikadze got the... Cr he got busted up. His right eye had a couple of cuts. They made like a, an inverted V going through his eyebrow. Um, I know one of those cuts was opened up in the fifth. And that was somewhat fortunate only because if that... When he only had the one cut, it wasn't great, but I can see the argument for the fight continuing. By the time that second one comes into play, um, 
if they if the doc if they like had another round after this one after you got the cut whether whether it either happened earlier or there was a sixth round uh they would have the doctors should have stopped that fight um looking at those cuts and where they were positioned and everything like that those were fight ending cuts uh he got messed up and it's not like cater got away unscathed he got uh, his nose got damaged <coughs> pardon me my uh, I don't know why, but I think I might be coming down with something, uh, today, so if I sound a little bit awkward or things go off the rails, I apologize, that's my health. Uh, but some of the things that Cater, there were a few things that I mentioned that I, I thought Giga would be able to capitalize on. The biggest one is kind of Cater's rhythm. Anytime you throw at him, he covers up and he kind of retreats. He doesn't really plant his feet until he runs out of real estate. And even then, he doesn't like to punch with you most of the time. This is a general trend. He tends to wait for your combination to end and then try to fire back, rather than, again, throwing at the same time. Max Holloway and, uh, when they fought, they exploited that. Didn't matter what Cater did, and Cater landed some punches along the way. That was a... I mean, that was a blowout fight for Max, but it wasn't... It wasn't like Cater gave up, and it wasn't like he ever really stopped throwing back. He was just seriously outgunned. Uh, He landed punches on Max Holloway. Max takes damage. It's one of the things that's kind of made me... uh, I'm I'm not calling for the man to end his career, to retire or anything, but I've talked about about this in the past. Max has taken a fair bit of punishment, and that bill does come due. And he's been doing this for a long time, both in terms of years and in terms of miles. But Max would just throw, you know, maybe we trade some jabs, then Holloway starts double jabbing, and Cater covers up and backs up, and Max just punished him for that over and over and over again. Uh, and I thought Giga Chikadze might be able to do something similar, especially with the high guard. Giga's a great uh, attacker of the body. And the first two minutes or so, that's kind of what it was looking like. Um... Cater struggled a little bit when Giga would switch in combination. Cater's good about fighting you out of either stance. So I don't mean to say that you could just... You can't just go to a diff, to the other stance and suddenly, ha-ha, I have bested you. Like, suddenly it's checkmate. That's, that's not how that works. Uh, but doing it in, again, in motion and, like, mid-combination throws a lot of people off. Throws off some very, very high-level strikers, uh... I mean, jeez, you know, uh, Poirier caught Khabib with shifting punches, and Poirier caught Max Holloway with shifting punches, too. And the level of striking purely for its own sake between those two is very different, but the fact that he was able to have success against two wildly different kinds of fighters with the same sort of basic technique... Uh, when, when I say basic in that instance, I just mean he's doing essentially the same thing. Not that Not that throwing shifting punches is a fundamental kind of thing. It's really not. That's difficult to do well. Uh, It's just a thing that takes time to adjust to, and Cater really struggled with that. Uh, Chikadze hit him with some nasty body kicks. I give Cater tons of credit for just eating them. Things went sideways for Chikadze in the middle of the first round when he slips on a kick and Cater immediately recognizes the opportunity placed before him because they were 
uh, when before that, I think the striking was going the way of Chikadze. Cater's jab was doing okay, but he was taking some calf kicks. He'd taken some body kicks. Like he wasn't, it wasn't quite favoring him. Then Giga slips. Uh, Cater jumps on him. He fights back up. He hits this big amplitude takedown and spends the rest of the round on top in half guard. Most of it. I think he, he passed towards the end of the round. But he just got to spend the next, you know, two and a half minutes, give or take. Uh, might have been closer to three. I forget the exact timestamps. Uh, on top, wearing Giga out just a little bit, you know, letting him tense his muscles, but making him spend time in a position he's not accustomed to being in, and doing some work from top position. When we came out for the second round, Giga didn't quite have his legs under him the way you'd like to see. And the big thing that Cater was able to make work once the second round started was his forward pressure really started to pay dividends. It's it's not that Giga Chikadze can't fight backing up, but fighting while backing up is a very, very different skill set. And you have to be very, very prepared for that. And there's certain things that are... That are tough to do when you're backing up, especially kicking. Uh, I, I'm not saying you can't kick while backing up, because if you make an absolute statement like that, there's always going to be somebody who decides to do the, you know, well, I think you'll find, or the, I'm not going to say but actually, but you, you get the idea. You can kick while backing up, it's just much more difficult, and it's not nearly as effective the vast majority of the time. So taking a strong kicker and making them be on the back foot is a really good way about dealing with them. Now, that's not without peril. This is not to say that anybody can do this. Uh, you still have to deal with whatever they're throwing at you offensively. You still have to be you know, mindful, but it's harder to do. Uh, for older school fans, you'll remember Fedor Emelianenko just walking down Mirko Krokop. And I say just, it wasn't just, you know, there was plenty of things that he had to do, but a devastating, especially a kicker, and Krokop might still be the most devastating kicker the sport's ever seen. If you're not, if you haven't seen what Mirko Krokop could do to people, uh, do yourself a favor, look up some highlights or some old fights of his. Uh, he was a brutal finisher. And he took away much of Krokop's offense by making him fight off the back foot. A lot of the same kind of basic principle at play here. Once Chikadze stopped kicking, and he he got back to it a little bit, round four, um, which is when he caught his second win. Like, he looked done in that, like, kind of that third round, the end of it. Uh, he looked pretty done, gas tank-wise. And then he found his second win a bit in the fourth, and he did... It's weird because in some respects he did some of his best work in the fifth and it was still arguably a 10-8 round for Cater, but that's more to do with the ending sequence than uh, whether or not the rest of the round was competitive. Uh, he got back to kicking a little bit then, but he spent rounds two and three barely kicking. And that's one of his best weapons. When you're forced to just box with Cater, that's a difficult proposition. Uh... Not unwinnable, but very, very difficult, especially once you start factoring in the elbows and the clinch work, uh, both of which Cater used very adroit, uh, adeptly. Not adroit. I mean, that would still work, but I think adept is more accurate. 
and it was Chikadze just couldn't really ever get back into his rhythm. Uh, couldn't find ways to get his offense going. There were a few points in time when he was able to back Cater up, and suddenly everything he did came alive. But he's he's not he was not prepared in this fight to really fight off the back foot, and that showed, and it showed in the results. Uh, that said, man, Giga's toughness is ridiculous. Um, this wasn't quite as bad as you know what Max did to Cater, but it was. Not as far off as you might think. Uh, he took a beating, and even when he looked gassed, he never came close to quitting. Uh, never. So I give him a ton of credit for that. Uh, I think he can learn from... One of the things on commentary... I actually rather enjoyed the commentary. Uh, our, we had Brendan Fitzgerald doing you know, the play-by-play, -play, and then we had Dominic Cruz and Michael Bisbing. When Cruz and Bisbing are in rhythm, I like what they both bring. Um, Cruz kind of makes Bisbing up his analytical game a little bit. And, again, when their chemistry is on rather than off, Bisbing's able to draw out a bit more of Cruz's personality rather than having him be qu uh, as dry as he can be. Now, the downside is occasionally they get a bit more frictiony than complementary. And I don't mean that in the sense that they you know, they make kind of jokes at each other's expense on occasion, uh, which is fine. Like a good-natured banter like that is, uh, I don't object to that at all. Uh, but you can also tell sometimes when it gets a little bit frosty, you know, and that gets a bit uncomfortable. But when they're when they're in rhythm, like I said, I, I like how they complement each other. Uh, I think it was Bisbing who mentioned, you know that Giga Chikadze is only going to get better from this experience, and you can't take that for granted. He might. Uh, if you ask me to bet on it, I think he probably will, but he, he just mentioned that, you know, these are the kinds of fights that you know, show you something about yourself, and, you know, I mean, look what Cater did, and these fights make you better. You know, you come back better. Well, or you come back, I mean, I was thinking this, or you come back never the same. These kind of fights will, they'll take something out of you. I mean, if that logic, I mean, human beings are not Saiyans. I mean, Saiyans aren't even real. You know, if that logic held, you know, God, God help whoever had to fight Carlos Condit or Robbie Lawler after their fight. Because those two should have come out better by that logic. Now, I'm... I'm not trying to say Michael Bisbing's unaware of the physical toll that fighting takes. He knows far better than I do. He was, in that moment, I think he was trying to make sure that Giga Chikadze's performance uh, was acknowledged in terms of what he was able to do effectively and as well as, you know, kind of the heart, the spirit, and the courage that he displayed. And to try and keep uh, a degree of excitement about the guy's future. It's... It's very easy to watch a fighter on the wrong end of this kind of a fight and to lose enthusiasm for what they'll do next. Uh, I mean, arguably, Cater suffered from that here. I mean, as an, uh, I'm not the only one who kind of said, you know, I don't know what he's going to look like after what Max Holloway did to him. And it, it can just be... Being on the wrong end of this kind of fight, it was a great fight. Like, this is currently your fight of the year for 2022. I know we're two weeks in. 
whoop de doo but it was a good fight. Like, I'm not I'm not afraid to you know, not this is on my list actually. I've started my list up again. My nominee list. This is on that list. You know, what I mean you would get a default leader after a first couple of events anyway, but this one I think will hold up a little bit. Uh, being in one of those fights in and of itself is not necessarily a net boon to your popularity and career just because you're part of it. And I, I think Bisbing was trying to be cognizant of the fact that I need to make sure the people understand that this guy's still going to be around and we need to maintain some enthusiasm for the future of Giga Chikadze because while he lost here and in some respects lost badly, that's not to guarantee that he's going to be done. You know, we And we need to main, we need to, you know, still have to promote the guy and keep people excited about him. So I understand that, but there's the other half of that sentiment that... Well, you come back better, or you never recover. Like, that's kind of how that goes. Uh, I don't know. I imagine Giga Chikadze will be back. You know, the guy had a decorated kickboxing career. Uh, this is his first loss in the UFC. So I imagine he'll be back. I, I'm just not going to even try to play matchmaker for him at the moment, because by the time he should be ready to return... The landscape will be different. This guy should take as much time to heal up as is necessary. You take a beating like this, you know, eight months, nine months, almost at a minimum, right? You take all the time you need, buddy, please. And I, I don't mean that you know, pejoratively at all. Uh, as for Cater, I said he got ding. He didn't. He did not get nearly as busted up as Chikadze did, but he. Did not come out of this unscathed by any stretch of the imagination. I think the basic thought process here is for Cater, you either get a rematch with Zabit in a five-round fight, or Brian Ortega are probably, I think, the two front runners to fight him next. Uh, if if Chan Sung Jung was available, that one would also be an option, but with the Korean Zombie getting the title shot... By that's the way everything is going at the moment. Whether it holds together or not will remain to be seen. But that's the way things are going at the moment. Um, now, now he and Zabit fought in no November of 2019. They got bumped to the main event last minute, so they only had a three-round main event. And uh, Zabit Magomed Sharipov won the fight via unanimous decision, won the first two rounds, and then lost the third pretty handily. Uh... I would be curious to see that. Now, we don't know what's up with Zabit at this point. I mean, he's been out of action since since the Cater fight. Good grief. Um, little over two years. Um, yeah, over two years. I know he had COVID and whatnot. Um, uh, he had a, apparently he had a bad case of COVID that... Um, uh, like aggravated other things. Um, I think they're looking at him. I know his coach, uh, Mark Henry, has been kind of making noise that he'll be returning to action soon. Soon's not a date. Soon's not a fight. Um, I would be point being there. I would be curious to see a rematch between those two over five rounds. I, I need to see Zabit in a five-round fight. I mean, that guy is dangerous in the first round. 
still a problem in the second, but his third rounds have been bad. And if you've got to fight for five, like that's something you need to iron out. So I would be curious to see that to see that rematch or Brian Ortega is kind of the in the other option. You know, Cater could win either of those fights. I might actually favor him over five in his beat rematch. But either of those guys are going to do some they're going to do damage to him. I mean, Ortega got I I struggle I worry about what Ortega might do to him in some ways like that. That could be bad. But you have to fight the fights. Uh, so he's got to defend his spot. I Featherweight's in a weird position. I mean, Max falling out of the fight with Volkanovski, not great. Uh, Featherweight's in a weird spot. I mean, you've got Max and Volkanovski, and the problem is, to the extent this is a problem, one, Max has beaten pretty much everyone not named Volkanovski. And Volkanovski's beaten a lot of other top contenders, including Max, twice. Like, you've got two guys at the top there. And I I want to stress this. I, I mean, look, as far as Cater goes, like, if they gave him a rematch with Max, would that go any differently? I, mean, I My inclination is no. Would I favor him to beat Volkanovski? Not at all. Uh, and the reality is that's a problem. I mean, you've got Brian Ortega there too, and Ortega's a certainly a top-tier featherweight who's been on the wrong end of fights with both Holloway and Volkanovski, both of which were pretty severe beatings. Uh, that might, that's going to add up for him too, man, and I, I worry about that sometimes. Like, there's a lot of promise there, and you take that much damage, it ain't good. So... I imagine one of those two fights will be next for Cater. He's still a bit out of the title picture, given that Holloway loss being so recent and so bad. Uh, Chikadze, again, I'm not going to play matchmaker. Uh, Let the man heal up, then we'll see where the landscape is when he's ready to get back to action. There's still other featherweight fights I think would be be interesting for him. I'm just... uh, it would be pointless to kind of say, hey, I'd love to see him against X when we don't know what the situation will be in, you know, eight months or so when he's kind of ready to maybe think about coming back. So that was your main event. Darn good fight. Look it up if you haven't. Uh, oh, last thing about that. Another technique thing. Cater hit some really nice spinning elbows. Uh, because he, je- he did kind of what... One of the things that Tony Ferguson does... Tony Ferguson would usually do it when he stepped through. Like, if if he was um, orthodox... Tony would step through on a right... And then... Would, like, overstep it... Uh, to his... To his own inside, right? To the inside of his body. And then rotate around and catch it with the left elbow... Um, Cater wasn't stepping through on what he was doing so much as he would, like, throw a jab, bait a counter, and then slip to his own inside. So if you're jabbing out of the orthodox stance, that's slipping to your right. Then he would kind of get the counter coming at him, and he'd just dip off to that side and throw the right elbow and kind of spin behind him. And he cracked Chikadze with that a couple of times. It's a really nice technique. Uh, it takes timing and a good read on your opponent to make it work, but 
when you can make it work, man, it's really good. I mean, I already mentioned it. Ortega tried that a few different times. He dropped the Korean zombie with it. Nearly caught Max with it once or twice when they fought. It's a nice technique. Cater, uh, one of the more prolific elbow use employers, as I mentioned before. So, yeah, good fight in the main event. Co-main event. The rest of this is going to be a lot quicker. Um, Jake Collier defeated Chase Sherman via rear naked choke. 226 of the first round. What do you want me to say? Uh, look, what I'm about to say is not me fat-shaming Jake Collier for being a heavier guy. But this was your walrus fight of the evening. You know, it's lower-end heavyweights. Sherman slipped on a kick, Collier got on top, and 90% of the time with heavyweight grappling, 95% of the time, if you're on top, you're going to win. And Collier's a pretty good grappler. Uh... There, I mean, there was a skill differential here anyway between him and Sherman on the ground. That was fairly obvious. But you get that, you get guys that big, you know, I've said before, you want to tell me the guys who are great off of their back in heavyweight history? It's a short list. It's a real short list. So at least it, it ended quickly. Uh... This was your, I guess, this was your co-main event. We had two ranked contenders fighting. We had two ranked contender fights below this. Uh, this uh, wasn't good. At least it was. At least it was short. Uh, if you can't be good, at least be short. <laughs> as far as that goes. Flyweight Brandon Royval defeated Rogerio Bontrin via split decision, 29-28. One for Bontrin, two for Royval. I went for Royville. I don't really object to the split. Uh, I think that largely comes down to the third round. Uh, so I, I don't know. I don't object to it, but I also don't agree with giving two rounds to Bontarine. This was a good fight. They had some really good scrambles here. Um, Bontarine's a really interesting jiu-jitsu player when he gets going. I think the problem is when he's on bottom, he does the jujitsu thing of trying to lock everything down. And that's what cost him here ultimately is Royville got on top of him after a scramble and locked him down basically from top, from half guard and just rode out dealing damage for the last, uh, you know, 90 seconds or so of the round. Uh, good win for Royville. You know, good, decent performance out of Bontarine who did not look overmatched. He, uh, this was a solid fight. A solid fight. Uh, women's flyweight, less solid. Caitlin Chukagian defeats Jennifer Maia via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Um, Maya never found a way to reliably close distance, and her punches were all kind of the same, so once Chukagian had a feel for her defense, I, that, this was a lot, this was basically sparring for Chukagian. Um, Apparently, this was the last fight on Shukagian's deal, so she, we're going to negotiate and see if she comes back to the UFC or goes to Bellator. Um, look, I've watched a lot of Caitlin Shukagian's fights. I'm not saying she's a bad fighter. I'm saying I don't enjoy her fights for the most part. Um, I think if she goes to... Hypothetically, if she leaves the UFC and does go to Bellator, neither of which are a given, but hypothetically, I think she'd be the Bellator flyweight champion... Fairly easily. Uh, I mean, I can make jokes about elements of Chukagian's style, and I have in the past. 
But the reality is she's not an easy fighter for most women to beat. You know, her losses in the UFC were a split decision to Liz Carmouche, a split decision to Jessica I. Then so half of her losses were split decisions. The I fight in particular I thought was a... I can't remember how I scored that one. Um... The I fight in particular was probably more competitive than the Karmouche fight. Then, you know, Shevchenko massacred her. And then Andrade stopped her in the first round with some body shots. But that's it. Like, she's beaten some pretty decent women. She's beaten Sajara Eubanks. Uh, she's beaten Lauren Murphy. Alexis Davis. Irene Aldana. Jennifer Maya twice. Uh, Cynthia Calvillo. Like, She's not an easy out. She may not be she may not put on fights that you're terribly that are terribly engaging, but that's not always the job of the fighter. The job of the fighter is to win, and more often than not she wins. So I I don't know what and I mean loosely in that same line. I don't especially uh care. I hope she look as long as she's satisfied wherever she goes with her financial compensation and whatnot, then you know, that's between her and her life goals and whatever pro- and you know whatever uh, promoter promotion she signs with. Uh, yeah, not a great fight. Uh, our only other finish of the evening, Vyshlav Borshev uh, defeated Dakota Bush via um, Borshev's uh, nickname is um, oh Slava Klaus, <laughs> which I I find amusing. Uh, TKO's Dakota Bush with a beautiful and brutal left to the body. 347 of the first round. Um, Borshev is someone, I think, to pay attention to. He's still got a lot of seasoning to go. Um, He comes from a bit of a kickboxing background. But he's younger in his MMA career. Trains out of Team Alpha Male. And look, if you're worried about showing up your wrestling... You could go worse places than Team Alpha Male, my sort of uh, antipathy towards them as individuals, and in some cases the collective notwithstanding. It, it just wouldn't be fair to them to say that, to pretend that they're a bad team, especially if this is something you have to work on. Uh, he stopped a lot of takedowns. He got taken down a f- couple of times, but always was able to get back up. And that finish was brutal. A um, little bit... A little bit reckless, the way he closed distance on the finish. In fact, he got tagged with a right hand. Just apparently not enough heat on it from Bush to even to, to slow him down even. He just just roasted Bush with that left to the liver. I mean, he dropped you know, like a lawn chair, just folded up. Uh, solid, solid win for Borshev. Uh, then at Featherweight to kick off the main card, Bill Algio defeated uh, Joe Anderson Brito. The unanimous decision, 130-27, Not a bad fight, but not great either. Um, Algio called out Shikadze after the fact. Uh, one of the insults he threw at him was calling him a Biden voter. Now, I'm not... First of all, lest I be accused of this, I in the most recent election here in the United States, I did not vote for Joe Biden. I did not vote for Donald Trump either. I did not find either of them uh, people I wish to hold that office. Uh, I I am not a big fan of insulting people for their political beliefs. 
in the real world, it's going to sound weird because of what I'm about to say, uh, because I, I just, I don't find that helpful, I don't find that useful, I don't, we, one of the things we've lost kind of in the United States recently, as a, in large part, is the ability to, you know, civilly disagree. And insulting someone for their political affiliations when most people buy into the two-party fallacy is just, it's a fool's errand. And we're seeing the fool, and we're seeing the fruit of that errand with the state of discourse at the moment. Um, and also because I'm about to talk about this, for the record, I am also not party affiliated. I'm not a member of either of the major, I'm not a member of any political party, actually, uh, here in the United States, so... Bear in mind, what I'm about to say is not driven by my uh, dislike or support of either side of the political spectrum. So I, I don't find I don't find uh, insults based on politics helpful in real life. I don't hate them in combat sports because I understand that you know. If you're trying to push buttons and get a reaction and sell tickets and get people talking, that's a fairly easy button to push these days. And I'm not really going to fault someone for doing so. I mean, look, do I find, like, Colby Covington's shtick tiring at times? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Is there... Do I understand it also? Yes. Yes, I do. Um... Uh, if you if you want to hear me talk a little bit more about that, listen to the uh, uh, the post fight uh, the review of UFC whenever he and whenever he and Usman fought. I think it was 268. Uh, that was Usman Covington too. Was that 26? No, I think it was 269. No, it was 268. Yeah, that was the the two rematches on that card. Um, either way, I talked I talked about. Uh, in the aftermath of that fight about uh, Covington's shtick and you know, why he continues to do it. So, uh, again, I can find it tiring while understanding the motivations and, frankly, the efficacy. My only gripe with this, as far as what he did, um, <laughs> I'm pretty sure Giga Chikadze didn't vote for Joe Biden. And I don't mean because he disagreed with Biden's politics, I have no idea. But... I don't think he's a citizen of the United States. Giga <laughs> um, Chikadze is from Georgia. Um, the country of Georgia, not the state. And... I think he still fights out of there too, right? Yeah. I Look, if you want to insult a fighter for who they voted for, fine. Fighters have said much worse things about each other than that in the course of combat sports history but you really should like try to limit it to things they even could reasonably do <laughs> uh that's a i don't blame the guy for taking a shot up the card and like i want to fight someone with a bigger name and a better position that's what fighters in that spot should be doing uh will he get it um i don't know look if he wins again but four chikads is ready to come back and he's able to kind of get more towards the ranked, uh, towards a ranked status, maybe. Maybe. Uh, I tend to think not, but not in the immediate future anyway, but so it, it made me laugh. I mean, look, I, I just can't get up in arms over fighters trying to drum up interest in what they do 
pushing a button that gets a reaction out of the majority of the people watching. Like, I, I don't care. I, I mean, if you want to talk about, like, the biggest of macro senses, is it great for the state of discourse in the United States or in the world at large? Probably not. But if you really want to try and pretend that stopping fighters from insulting each other over political beliefs is the first step towards fixing some of the problems with the state of discourse, that is a little bit like looking at... Uh, what's the analogy? That's like looking at the uh, the torn off fingernail on someone who's been shot. Like that's that is so far down the list of uh, things you should be worried about if you're trying to fix the problem. So uh, that was the main card. Prelims, short list. Again, we only had nine fights. Uh, Jamie Pickett defeated Joseph Holmes via unanimous decision, 29-28 across the board. I don't remember a whole lot about this. Um, Pickett was just a bit too much for Holmes, I think, overall. And Holmes faded down the stretch. Like his cardio wasn't quite there for the style of fight Pickett forced him to fight. Uh, Court McGee, my sentimental favorite, defeated Ramiz Brahimai via unanimous decision, 30-27 across the boards. Um, I'm going to wax a little bit poetic here, so bear with me. Uh, Court McGee doesn't always have the most fan-friendly style, but if you want to understand how to use fence wrestling and clinch fighting to do damage and to wear your opponent out. I mean, look, your big... The big tape study you should have for that is, you know, Khabib. Or Randy Couture. Like, those those, were, those are two of the better guys. You know, depending on which part of his career and who he's fighting, Rafael Dos Anjos. Like, there's a lot of guys at the upper echelon who have made that work. If you want another... If you want an addition to that style to understand how to make it work rather than just stall out all the time. Court McGee knows how to make that style work. Uh, he just got close fairly quickly, and once... The thing about Court McGee's style, and this style in general, but the way he kind of implements it as well, everything after that first round... Sometimes it's a full round, but certainly the first, like, three-ish minutes of fence wrestling, of takedowns and get-ups and takedowns and get-ups, and pummeling and clinch fighting and you taking knees and punches and elbows and that exhausting style of grinding and fence wrestling, everything after that gets easier. Like, if you know how to make that work, your hardest round is that, your first, your toughest bit is that first part. Everything after that gets easier and easier and easier. And this is true of anyone who makes that work for them. It's true of Randy. It was true of Randy Couture. Uh, to an extent, it was true of Tito Ortiz. I mean, he was you know, even further back, and in, in some respects, further back than Couture. Couture competed at a higher level more recently. If you look at the trajectory of their careers, you know, when was the you know, Khabib's toughest? Khabib tends tended to have if he was going to have a hard time was the first round. Then once you got tired. Which is odd, considering, you know, the third round against McGregor was the one where he just kind of took off. But I think that was more about Khabib than anything that Connor did. Uh, just for the record. But th that's kind of the, the thought process there. And you could see it here. Like, early on, you know, McGee was kind of still coming out on the better end of things. But after that, they spent a lot of the first round, again, fence wrestling. Once they separated, you could see it. 
You could just see it right away, like, oh, this is gonna go. This is not gonna go Brahimai's way unless he can change the momentum, and he never could. So, Court McGee at about my age, uh, still getting it done. He's still kind of, really kind of fighting his stride late in his career. I mean, he's been. I said this. Uh, this needs to be said. That man's been with the UFC for like 12 years. Uh, he debuted for them in 2010. I'd have to double-check exactly when, but certainly over 11. That There are plenty of people who don't have careers nearly that long. And he's had ups and downs, but he really seems to have kind of dialed himself in uh, the last couple of fights. So I give him credit, man. You know, the guys who persevere through the highs and the lows and then finally things start clicking later in their careers, it's rarer to see, but... It's a rewarding thing to witness. Uh, featherweight Brian Kelleher defeated Kevin Kroom via unanimous decision. 230-27s, 129-28. Uh, Kroom, this was supposed to be at bantamweight, and Kelleher was supposed to fight uh, Said Yakub uh, Hakramanov. I give Kroom credit for stepping up by like three days, and they fought at featherweight instead of bantamweight, which is where Kelleher normally fights. Kroom was much bigger. Like Kroom fights at featherweight normally. And that size disparity was evident. Um, Kelleher was just able to do the more meaningful damage, and then he out-wrestled Kroom, and that kind of became the difference maker down the stretch. Uh, so, fun little fight, and then kicking everything off, TJ Brown defeated Charles Rosa via unanimous decision, 29-28s uh, across the board. I, I agreed with that decision. Um... Yeah, Rosa just kind of got out-wrestled again. And that's becoming a problem for him. I mean, Brown's a good wrestler, so I don't mean to say that anybody could do it, but it's a problem. As I mentioned, we lost a bunch of fights. We, uh, I was looking forward to Kelleher and Kokromanov. I, I like Kokromanov, so I was looking forward to see him tested. Um, TJ Brown was supposed to fight Gabriel Benitez. Rosa stepped in on short notice. That's That would have been a featherweight fight, but because of the short notice, they bumped it up to lightweight. Uh, I would have been very interested in that, especially having seen Brown and what he did to Rosa. Brown and Benitez, uh, I hope they remake that. Uh, we lost Muslim Salikov and Michelle Pereja. Um, that sucked. Pereja's gonna got bumped to this upcoming card. And he's fighting a nobody. <laughs> um, we lost a... I don't know if it would have been a decent fight or not, but Cledson Rodriguez, or Rodriguez, I don't know where that gentleman's from, and Zerok Adeshev was supposed to be on this card. I was um, loosely interested in that. I kind of... Again, loosely interested in that. Um, Adeshev looked pretty good in his last fight when he beat Ryan Benoit, but... Uh, he's He's got some ability, but he's also a little bit kind of green to be in the UFC. Uh, we also lost Joaquin Buckley and Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, which would have been just a... That would have been a slugfest. Or a clinch fest. Uh, and, yeah, we just... We lost a lot of fights, but for the nine fights we did get, you know, there were only a couple of duds. And... Uh, yeah, it was... It was a really good main event, and I think that's one of the things that we all kind of knew. was like, this is being held together mostly on the strength of Chikadze and Cater. And that delivered, so... Kudos. If you want my full report with my live, with my play-by-play uh, -play scoring that I had done and whatnot, it, that report is in the MMA Zone of 411Mania.com. 
please do give it a read if at all possible. All right, moving on. UFC 270. Two title fights that comes towards this, that comes towards everyone Saturday, this Saturday, the 22nd. Uh, they'll be in California. Uh, let's see here. Let's see if there's stuff I need to kind of mention before. You know, we've lost a few fights. We were supposed to get Alexi Olenek and Greg Hardy. Olenek fell out, then Hardy fell out, so the whole thing's been scrapped. Uh, we're supposed to get Poliana Botello and Ji Young Kim. That fell out. Uh, let's see. Charles Jordan is replacing Movsar Devoyev against Ilya Teporia. Kind of a lateral move there. Um, still interested. Uh, we lost Viviane Araujo and Alexa Grasso. That's kind of unfortunate. Um, that might have... If Grasso got a solid win, she might have been able... She might be able to get into the title scene, especially if he gets a finish. Because they're desperate to find bodies for Valentina. Uh, that fight's still on, but was replaced. Um... Jared Cannonier and Derek Brunson were originally set here, but got bumped to UFC 271. So we have a point being, we have a couple of fights that are going to be on the prelims, not the early prelims. Uh, but we don't know exactly the order, so I'll talk about those when we get to them. Your main event for the heavyweight title, Francis Ngannou goes for his first title defense when he takes on interim champion Cyril Gan. Before I talk about kind of the X's and O's here, uh, I need to bring up the following. Francis Ngannou um, is in the midst of a bit of a spat with the UFC. He wants more money, which I've said at the moment. I'm just, look, I don't care who in the UFC at this point says they want more money. They all deserve more money. Uh, he's not terribly thrilled with how he's been treated. And I can't say I blame him entirely for that. Um... And this is the last fight on his deal. Now, there used to be a clause in UFC contracts of dubious legality, but it was never challenged, that if you win a fight as champion, even if it's your last one, they can the UFC can just kind of roll over your deal. Now, I don't think that that's fully in place here for Nganu because Nganu has one of the newer contracts that we don't have uh, I don't think we've... The UFC contract structure has changed a fair bit over the last couple of years, like three or four. So there there are things that we're not as aware of. That The UFC contracts used to be fairly standard. And the last little bit that's changed, I think the UFC has been trying to continue a couple of... exploiting a couple of their business practices, um, primarily having fighters be independent contractors. I mean, the championship clause might not hold up to legal scrutiny, even under other circumstances. That deserves to be noted. But they, so they've been shifting a few of their business practices around, and if Nganu wins, he very well might. I, I don't know how that will play out. Um, he might just negotiate a new deal for money that makes him happy, and he stays with the UFC. He might leave. He might sign with Bellator in a deal that lets him also do boxing on the side. To be fair, if he goes to Bellator, I imagine he would win the Bellator heavyweight title without too much difficulty. Um, Ryan Bader is still their champion, and while Ryan Bader's a good wrestler, 
I imagine that fight would go about as well for Bader as his fight with Anthony Joshua did. Not Anthony Joshua, excuse me, Anthony Johnson. Remember that Anthony Joshua would go bad for Ryan Bader, too, as a general rule. Uh, I don't know. That might depend a little bit on rule seven. Bader's a touch chinny, and Ngannou, you know, hits like a truck. Uh, I mentioned before, he and Tyson Fury have kind of been making some noise at each other about some kind of fight. Um, Fury said he'd be willing to box Ngannou in four-ounce MMA gloves. Ngannou said, I'll do an MMA fight with you in boxing gloves. <laughs> um... For the record, if they fight anything approximating the MMA rule set, I imagine Ngannou could win that. Tyson Fury, in a, the best heavyweight boxer in the world right now, my opinion. Feel free to disagree. Uh, he's got some skinny legs. And it's not a big deal because he's a boxer. And his legs hold up. They are properly conditioned for boxing. Uh... But one imagines a handful of calf kicks might seriously cause him to reconsider his life choices. You know, uh, if they fight in anything like if they fight in boxing, I don't I don't care what gloves they use. If they box, uh, if they box, Tyson Fury pretty much walks all over him. <laughs> like boxing is a very specific skill set, people, and. Ngannou has... Pa I saw some people... I yelled about this a little bit a couple of weeks ago, but or last week maybe, but... I saw some people say that, you know, I give... I give Ngannou the same chance I gave Wilder, more or less. I'm not a big fan of Deontay Wilder, as far as fandoms go. But that is a... That is... To make that... Equ that uh, to equate those two... Is to grossly... Grossly... Undersell the ability of Deontay Wilder as a boxer. Everyone says he's not a great boxer. He's not a great boxer by most technical measurements. He is a vastly superior boxer by every technical measure over Francis Ngannou. Francis Ngannou hits really, really hard. You might say, well, Deontay Wilder hits really, really hard. True. Deontay Wilder also won a bronze medal in the Olympics. Now, granted, I, I said this before. Deontay Wilder started boxing when he was 19. He was in the same gym as people who had at least 10 years of boxing training over him. That is not to say that the man is some awful, awful... Watch the way Francis Ngannou punches half the time. It's not good. Now, you might say the same thing about Wilder. Wilder's worst punches are equivalent to above-average MMA punches, technically. Now, you get the very high-end of mixed martial arts, and that's not true. Like, there are some very high-end strikers in mixed martial arts who have proper technique. But you take someone, watch the way Wilder throws punches, watch the average prelim fight on the UFC and tell me there's much of a difference. There's not. Uh, Ngannou boxing Tyson Fury would have significantly less chance than Deontay Wilder. And that's not about power. 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how Ngannou's power would translate to boxing gloves rather than MMA gloves, and there is a difference. I just know he's not a boxer. He's not used to fighting at that pace. He's not used to fighting at that round structure. He's not used to the technique that has to go into that. And that's not to say that Ngannou... Look, Ngannou's fine not being a boxer. He's an MMA fighter. Tyson Fury is fine not being an MMA fighter. He's a boxer. But the the point being, they've been making noise about it, and Ngannou wants a big payday. And I don't blame the man one iota for wanting more money. But that might be something that's kind of in the back of his head about potentially re-signing with the UFC. And if the UFC... Now, the UFC heavyweight title is in the somewhat unique position of having had this a similar situation to this in the past, more than... It's not common, but it has happened. A UFC champion has walked away from their belt. BJ Penn famously did it with the welterweight title after he beat Matt Hughes. Randy Couture had more than one contract dispute with the UFC that led to him... uh, One time he wasn't even stripped. The UFC kept him as champion. Uh, and then eventually kind of got him back into the fold. But it's happened before. Usually, though, there's already a contingency in place. In the, in the form of an, either an interim champion or an interim title fight, like, ready to go in short, short order. You just had an interim champion crowned in Sir Dalgan. If Nganu wins and walks away from the UFC, which I'm not saying will happen, but we'd be foolish to pretend it can't. Um, That would not be a good look for the UFC. Um, uh, Especially if he beats Gon. Especially if he knocks out kind of the new hotness at heavyweight. Um, And to be clear, I think the only way he wins is knockout. Uh, The only... We've seen Gon go in, go beyond the third round, like, once. And it got ugly in a hurry. So, uh, the longer this fight goes, as a, as a preview to my X's and O's thing, the more I favor Gon. Um, but part of me, as far as a rooting interest goes, is curious to watch and to see Nganu win, because watching the chaos that would ensue would bring me great amusement. Uh, as for the X's and O's specifically, I said after his last fight, and I think even the one before that maybe, that I like Gon's chances here. And I still do. Cyril Gon's movement is a real problem for a lot of fighters, and I think that includes Nganu. Gon has an understanding of distance and management of said distance that a lot of fighters, especially heavyweights, don't have. Um, he completely neutralized plenty of other big punchers. I mean, he knew he completely shut down and abused Derek Lewis. And I've joked about Derek Lewis in the past, but the reality is, fighting him's not easy. And Gon made it kind of look easy. Uh, he's dealt with technical strikers, guys like uh, the way he utterly diffused. Alexander Volkov was a little bit surprising to me. Not that he won. I might have picked Volkov in that fight. I don't remember, but 
I wasn't surprised that he won. I was very surprised at how ineffectual he rendered Volkov. Uh, he's good out of either stance, which is a problem for Nganu. He's good about attacking the body. I think that's a problem for Nganu. Nganu's wind is something of a pretty big question mark. Um, like that first round and a half, you're, you could be in serious trouble uh, against that guy. And surviving that round and a half is not easy at all. But if you get him into the third round, and you've pushed a decent pace, he he tends to fall apart a little bit. Now, I'm sure he knows this, and I'm sure he's been working on it. We'll find out, potentially, if that's still a problem for him or not in this fight. But at the moment, that's what the, ev that's what the evidence suggests. If they were in the smaller cage, now th again, this fight is taking place in the Honda Center in Anaheim, California. We will be in the 30-foot octagon instead of the 25-footer. In the 25-footer, I would like Nganu's chances a touch more. He needs to crowd Gon and land power punches. Um, and Gon, to his credit, has made great use of the 25-foot cage as well as the 30-foot cage. I mean, the Volkov fight was... Uh, was in the Apex Center. Um, pretty, yeah. Um, the fight with Lewis was in the big cage. Uh, he's... I think that's a problem. Now, I'm not going to be shocked if Francis Ngannou wins. He's he's just got that kind of power, man. I mean... He's got scary power. Really and truly scary. And his delivery system for that power has been improving. He was much more disciplined and diligent when he fought Stipe Miocic the second time. And that caused Stipe no end of problems. I think... I think Stipe was a little bit undone when his plan A didn't work and he never got to even think about plan B. Stipe kind of wanted to replicate what he did in their first fight, and... Uh, Nganu had kind of an answer for the leg kick, and his takedown defense was much more on point, meaning that Stipe couldn't tire him out in the same ways. Um, he didn't quite bite on as many feints, but usually that was also a product of some of the other stuff Stipe had done. You know, Stipe did a lot of jabs, a lot of leg kicks, a lot of single legs, and that kind of undid Nganu, and it didn't work the second time, to Nganu's credit. Gon's bigger than Stipe. Um, he's longer. He's a much better kicker than Stipe. I think Stipe might have more pure punching power, but that's not always the... Some of that, when we're talking about guys this size, is a matter of, unless you're someone like Francis, it's a matter of degrees. Like, it doesn't matter that much. It's rare you find heavyweights with pillow fists, you know? Not impossible, just rare. So, I kind of like, I said this, I like Gone. I'm not going to be shocked if he loses. I'm not. Unless Nganu pulls up, look, if Nganu pulls off an Imanari roll into an inside heel hook, like, okay, that would shock me, right? But, Nganu's a very good fighter. But his defense is still a little suspect. His gas tank is still a question mark. And he's fighting a guy who seems kind of tailor-made to give him problems. 
you know, Stipe, for all of his greatness in many respects, lived on his chin a little bit. Had a great one. Might still have a great one. After the, uh, you know, we haven't seen him since the Nganu fight. Uh, but he lived a little bit on his chin. And Gon doesn't do that. Uh, Stipe is also a little bit willing to kind of just be in the pocket with you. Not so much against Nganu. He knew how dangerous that was. But there's still a degree of... You know, trying to break up certain habits that he struggled with uh, when he couldn't use them against Nganu. That's not a consideration for Gon. He is very comfortable moving, sniping, uh, you know, kicking you in the body, kicking you in the leg, just poking at you, poking at you, poking at you. He's good in the clinch. The clinch will be an interesting place if it gets there. These are both very big, very strong fighters. Um, I'm convinced of the following, actually. I think Gon loses weight during his training camp. Like, that guy, when he's out of camp, is probably a lot closer to 265 than you might think. If all you know is what he weighs in on fight night, you know, he's a slightly lighter heavyweight, especially for a man his size. So having seen him as he's, you know, been a, a corner for other fighters in his camp and whatnot... It's easy to forget how big he is, and I think he dedicates time to losing weight, not again, not cutting down to make a minimum, or a maximum, rather. You, you know, I don't think he cuts weight in that respect, but I think a part of his camp is dedicated to, you know, slimming and speeding. And uh, he's a big, strong man. And so's Ngannou, so I think the clinch will be interesting if it gets there. Uh... I think Gon's the more diverse fighter, and I tend to favor those guys, especially someone who's built to move, who's built to snipe, who's built to frustrate and hurt and annoy all at distance. And if you're just kind of the big power puncher, you know, you've got to have good ways of closing distance. You've got to have consistent ways about closing distance. You can't really bite on fakes and feints the same way you might normally. Uh, you have to be able to do this against either stance. It's uh, it's difficult. So I'm I'm gonna lean towards Cyril Gan here, but this is a good fight. One of the better heavyweight. Uh, I can't say one of the better. You know what? Yeah, actually, I think this is a more intriguing fight than Nganu Stipe too. Certainly in hindsight. So that's your main event again. I lean Gan, but yeah, I, again, I'm I'm half rooting for Nganu because I want to see what happens. Um. He came out, one of the things he said recently was he isn't going to fight for six figures anymore. He doesn't want to fight for 500, 600,000. And I said, I don't blame the guy, man. You're the UFC heavyweight champion of the world. You know, you, uh, there's a real argument. You should be paid. A, I mean, I, I've said this. He should be paid a lot more. All of them should be paid a lot more. That's flat reality. Um, did see one thing on Twitter that I want to address. I forget the username, so forgive me. But somebody saw that, uh, I think it was Nganu did, you know, some kind of media thing. And they said, well, you know, this is the first time the guy's actually tried to sell his own fight as we get, like, to the fight week. Someone else responded, and I'm going to echo this sentiment. Yeah, if only he signed with someone to whose, pro whose profession it was to promote his fights. A promoter, if you will. Um, the number of people who have, like, 
emotionally attach themselves to the UFC is a little bit bizarre when it comes to stuff like this. The number of people who will say, you know, it's not the UFC's job to promote the fighters. Now, I've said before, I think the UFC's philosophy is not is that they don't promote fighters. They give fighters the largest platform to promote themselves. And some fighters do better with that than others. Now, I can say that that's their, their philosophy, implicit or otherwise. In fact, in some cases, I think they, they've like, given tacit admission to that fact. But you're still the promoter. You know, if you haven't heard a lot about UFC 270 for the last couple of weeks, that's not on Cyril Gan, it's not on Francis Ngannou, it's not on Brandon Moreno, it's not on Davis and Figueredo, it's not on anyone else on this card, it's on the UFC. It is their job to promote the fights. Not Ngannou, not Gan, not anybody else. So, make the U- I mean, how about we make the UFC do their jobs, yeah? It's it's a weird thing. I understand some of the loyalty to the UFC. I really do. And especially if you've been around MMA for a long time. Like, the UFC was your champion for a while. Like, they went to bat for the sport. And, but it's not 2009 anymore, guys. It's not 2012. The UFC won. They're not the renegades. They're not the underdogs. They're not fighting for recognition. They're on ESPN. They just had their most profitable year ever. Look, when the UFC's unfairly attacked, I'm happy to defend them. But if your response is, well, it's nice to see one of the main event guys finally doing something to promote the fight, blame the promoter. It's in their title. It is their job. The UFC people, so you know, the UFC is not a league. They're not the NFL. They're a promoter. They try to run themselves half like an NFL, half like the NFL league because it gives them certain advantages uh, business-wise that are debatably illegal. I leave that up. And that some of those things need to be challenged in court, to be quite candid. But until others weigh in on that, that's just my take on it. Until people who know more than me or we have an official ruling and whatnot. But they're a promoter, you know. Their job is to promote the fights. If you haven't seen a lot about UFC 270, don't go, well, why hasn't Francis Ngannou tweeted? Go, why isn't the UFC promoting this? Anyway. Um, co-main event. Another rematch. Well, sorry, another rematch. A rematch for the flyweight title. Champion Brandon Moreno goes for his first title defense against the man he beat for the belt, Davis and Figueredo. This is the third fight between these two. They fought in the last fight of 2020, the barn burner that went to a draw after a, largely due to a point deduction to Figueredo. Um, otherwise, Figueredo would have won that fight. Their rematch, Moreno submitted him in the second? Second or third? I want to say second. Third. was the third. Um... That second fight went very differently than their first. I don't just mean the finish. Um, their first fight was back and forth. Their second fight, Moreno was dialed in, man. You could not be more dialed in than he was. Um, he made Figueredo overswing and miss. He landed good counters. He had His takedown game was on point. 
if Moreno comes in, look, look, Figueredo's proved that it's possible for him to beat Brandon Moreno. So absent the groin kick and the point deduction from their first fight, he wins that fight. So he can win, and I'm certainly not going to pretend that he can't. Uh, and there's an open question about if Brandon Moreno can come back that dialed in again. You know, you can get sharp, you can get on point, but if you've got to be you know, at your peak, and look, the, the second fight with those two, that was the best Brandon Moreno. 100%, best to date, maybe best ever. Does he need that same level of performance to repeat? And can you get that out of yourself a second time? That Those are, look, some guys can, some guys can't. The question is about Moreno here, not uh, the not in kind of an ob, uh, obscure fashion. I will lean towards Moreno here. I thought his jab gave Figueredo problems. Figueredo has serious, serious power. Uh, the the grappling's relatively even between these two. Um, it's largely predicated on who gets on top and whether or not the other guy has an opportunity to scramble back up, so types of takedowns matter more than... You know, that's a weird thing about MMA these days. Um... The kinds of takedowns you can hit are more important than your ability to take someone down, almost. I've got a good double leg. Well, that's certainly a good thing to have, but securing the position after the fact is... It's almost more important than your ability to get them down anyway. If you can hit a billion takedowns, but uh, none of them last more than a second, you know... That, you might as well not, right? <laughs> so, I bring that up because if memory serves, what caused kind of the end for Figueredo in their rematch was Moreno getting his back standing and getting kind of a mat return from there and then jumping on his back. I might be misremembering. I apologize if I am. But those kinds of takedowns actually are more valuable at the moment in MMA because they are easy... First of all, they're easier to repeat and they're easier to establish control positions from. And, you know, a double leg is nice, but if you can't get your hips over their hips kind of and, and really stifle their movement, they're going to get back up. You might be able to hit a nice, you know, high crotch single leg. I know that's a bit that's a bit uh, contradictory because technically in the wrestling world, those are two different things, but kind of bear with me here. But if every time you spin them down, they're hitting a technical get-up and separating, you know, how valuable is that? Um, so, point being, types of takedowns matter almost as much as your ability to hit them. Because hitting certain takedowns that the other guy knows how to immediately spring up from, uh, maybe they can't stop your double leg, but if you can't keep them on the ground with it, there's a serious question to be raised about how valuable it is. Not to say there's no value, but there's a question, right? Uh, and Moreno's good about hitting takedowns that allow him to do something. Uh, and that was kind of the deal here. So I'm going to lean towards Moreno. But you know, their second fight, certainly not the barn burner you know, fight of the year contender that their first one was. It still wasn't bad. I'm looking forward to this one. Uh, also on the main card, the effort we talked about this a little bit earlier, Michelle Pereja and Andre Fial Fialho. I'm going to assume this gentleman's Brazilian while I look this up because that might affect how this is pronounced. 
Um, well, that was a pretty decent... Oh, he's Portuguese? Yeah. Okay, that could be very different than uh, Fialho. Um, some of the Portuguese... The difference between Brazilian Portuguese and Portuguese Portuguese is fairly stark in some respects. I mean, for example, uh, Portuguese Portuguese pronounces R's. Um, whereas Brazil, especially R's at the beginning of, of words, whereas in Brazilian Portuguese, R's at the beginning of words, especially names and whatnot, are pronounced as H's. That's why, you know, for example, um, Hoist Gracie is pronounced Hoist, not Royce. If Hoist Gracie were Brazilian, it would be Royce. That's why, you know, uh, the great uh, soccer player Ronaldo from Portugal is pronounced Ronaldo. If he were from Brazil, it would be pronounced Ronaldo. So I, I'm. that's just done to illustrate some of the differences in the language between you know, Portuguese from Portugal versus Portuguese from Brazil. And there's similar issues between... You know, in any language, when you get wide enough disparities, you know, the difference between American English and British English or Australian English in some respects can be quite stark. Uh, and Spanish from Spain is not the same as Spanish from Mexico, is not the same as Spanish from Puerto Rico, is not the same as Spanish from Colombia or Argentina or et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You, you guys get the idea. So I'm I'm going to have to wait until I hear how that's pronounced, but uh, I'm going with Fialho until I hear otherwise. I'll just apologize if I'm wrong. Um, Fialho's on a four-fight winning streak. I mean, I think he took this fight on relatively short notice, so I'm still going to favor uh, Michelle Pereja, but... Pereja's weird enough that that's not a gimme. Uh, and kicking off the main card at the moment, only four fights listed here. Uh, we have Cody Stamen and Saeed Nurmagomedov. It's not a bad fight, actually. Uh, Stamen is on a two-fight losing streak, losses to Jimmy Rivera and Marav Dwalish, really. Whereas Saeed Nurmagomedov, uh, lost to Hani Barcelos. Just his second loss ever. He has one loss to Magomed Bibluadov back in 2014. He's gone, what, 3-1 and one in the UFC coming off of a win? I mean, the guy he beat last time was... I hate to say a total no-hoper, because that, that diminishes what that gentleman you know, uh, did in making it to the UFC at all. But that was not a competitive fight. Uh, I'm going to pick Nurmagomedov here, but uh, that's a pretty good fight. Stamen's a decent enough test. He's not an easy out. Uh, as for the other prelims, Adolfo Vieja, speaking of other Brazilians starting the names with an R, uh, pronouncing like an H, Adolfo Vieja, and Wellington Terman, um... Terman beat Sam Alvia's last time out, which amuses me for some reason, but he's 2-3 and three overall in the UFC. He's a decent enough grappler, but he's not on Vieja's level. I mean, Vieja is maybe the best black belt of his generation. I mean, he, we're talking about a seven-time world champion. I think he has both gi and no-gi records. Yeah, he's an ADCC gold medalist. Uh, multiple times, like... Yeah, that guy's got a list of jiu-jitsu credentials as long as my arm. Uh, he's coming off a win over Dustin Stoltz first. After that, uh, his first loss ever to Anthony Hernandez after he gassed out and got caught in the seated arm triangle. 
which I know, like, John Danaher and I are the only ones that call it that, I think, but I'm still going with it because I think it's correct. I mean, you can just, I suppose you could just call it a guillotine choke. And, I mean, we don't really differentiate between arm in and arm not in for guillotine chokes when listing them, but I just think having the arm trapped that way makes it such a different kind of choke relative. I don't know. I might be wrong. I might be, you know, but I like calling it that, so that's what I'm going to call it. Um, I'm picking Vieja here. He's... Uh, I have no reason to pick against him. Just put it like that. Uh, Bantamweight, Hani Barcelos and Victor Henry. I have no problem picking Barcelos here. Barcelos coming off of his first loss in a long time. He dropped a majority decision to Team Valiev. The poor guys had a bunch of fights fall out. Uh, he was, I, I mentioned this, he was almost my uh, Ian McCall Memorial Worst Luck in MMA Award recipient for 2021. Uh, no problem picking him here. Uh, none at all. I, Barcelos is a very good fighter. We're also going to have Jack Della um, Madalena. This gentleman from... Find him here. Uh, Australia, I think. New Zealand? Australia, okay. The New Zealand and Australian flags are almost identical. So I don't know how his last name is pronounced. Um, not a good winning streak, actually. Uh, anyway, he will be fighting Pete Rodriguez. Um, I I don't know anything about either of these gentlemen. Let me double check Rodriguez. Rodriguez undefeated, but he's only 4-0. Uh, flip a coin. Probably going with uh, Madalena. Just more experience. Uh, let's see, we have Ilya Teporia and Charles Jordan. I'm okay picking Teporia here. Jordan is not to be dismissed at all, but I like Teporia. Um, Jordan's a good enough technical striker. Unfortunately, he doesn't have a tremendous amount of power, and it takes him a bit to get going. Once he gets going, he's, um, he's a handful, but uh, it takes him a bit to get there, and to... Uh, Teporia's a... He's done some damage to people. Uh, I, I like Teporia here, but that's a that's a pretty good fight. Uh, don't sleep on that one. As for the early prelims, let's see. We have Tony Gravely and Simon Oliveira. I feel okay picking Gravely there. Double check that real fast. Gravely lost to Nate Manis. Yeah, I'll still pick Gravely, but that's... Uh, I wouldn't... I would not discount Oliveira. Welterweight, Trevin Giles against Michael Morales. Giles lost to Drakus Duplessis. A pretty good knockout, actually, from Duplessis. To break a three-fight... Uh, a two-fight, rather, winning... Three-winning streak? Can't count. Yeah, three-fight winning streak. Um, Morales, by contrast. Uh, he is from... Do I recognize that flag? I want to say Ecuador? 
Yeah, that is Ecuador. Hey, me. He's undefeated. He's 12-0. and 0. Uh, Coming off a win on the Contender Series. Um, hmm. Yeah, I'm still going to lean towards Giles, but... Uh, he represents just a big enough step up in competition for Morales, but you get to 12-0, and 0, man. In MMA, that's not easy. That's not an easy feat to accomplish. Um, Silviana Gomez Juarez will fight Vanessa Demopoulos. Uh, I think... I said I was going to lean on this. I think I lean Demopoulos. Yeah, Juarez... She's got some grappling issues, and Demopoulos is a pretty good grappler. She's kind of weak in other areas. Uh, that's... Well, uh, that's one of her problems, but... Let's see. She is. She lost her UFC debut. She took that on fairly short notice, I seem to recall, or Aldridge did one of the two. Um, she's had a couple of fights fall out since then. Jeez. Yeah, I'm gonna pick Demopolis here, but yeah, you know, that that's a bit of a coin flip in terms of practicality. Lightweight Matt from uh, Matt Frivola and Gennaro Valdez. Mr. Valdez here. He is Mexican. He is 10 and 0. Beaten anyone I know. Coming off a win on the Contender Series. Uh, no, doesn't look like he's beaten anyone I know. Matt Frivola is a weird one to kind of get your head around. He's had some tough losses. He's had some good wins. He's had some tough wins. Tough one. I'm going to pick Frivola here. I um, won't be shocked if he loses, though. And kicking everything off, I assume. Kay Hansen and Jasmine uh, Desidavisis. I'm probably wildly mispronouncing that woman's last name, so I apologize if I am. Uh, where is, oh, she's Canadian. Jesse Devisius, if that's um, depending on where, depending on where in uh, Canada, she fight out of. Do we know uh, the Niagara top team? I don't know that group. I'm gonna go with my pronunciation until I hear otherwise. She's coming off a contender series win. She's six and one. Okay, Hanson at seven and four. That's kind of a tough one, actually. Yeah, I'll pick Hanson. I'm, I'm just kind of going with veterans here versus people who I'm not terribly familiar with. But that's where we are, so pretty long. It's a pretty big card. And that's what, four, six, ten, eleven. Yeah, that's 13 fights, I think. Forgive me if I can't count. It, I'm. Uh, my brain's a little bit foggy, is all. I uh, so I will have coverage of that in the MMA Zone of 411mania.com this Saturday. So please do stop by, say hello. I always appreciate that, if at all possible. And I will, of course, go over all of the results next week on the 411 back here on the podcast. Uh, all right. 
let's talk a little bit about Henry Cejudo, I guess. Uh, I shouldn't be dismissive of this. This is a real problem in some respects. So, Dana White and Henry Cejudo have started having issues. Now, Henry Cejudo has kind of been campaigning to get a shot at the featherweight title. He's been throwing this out off and on for a while now. And it really kind of accelerated after he... After Max Holloway fell out of the fight with Volkanovski. Um, he did a brief... I say brief only because it hasn't been a long period of time. You know, we're talking about things that are less than... Events that are less than a month old. And he said... I want the shot. I want to be featherweight champion. I He wants to go from being triple C to C4, because then he would be an Olympic champion, flyweight, bantamweight, and featherweight, and he wants to rebrand himself, I guess. I'm sure his competitive spirit is burning. He wants the challenge, and if he can bypass certain elements of the hurdles that are normally in place to achieving a UFC title shot, then, boy, he's going to try and take them. And to be clear, I don't necessarily begrudge him that in its entirety at all. Um, <sighs> now, all indicators at the moment are that the UFC is going to go with the Korean zombie. Now, this is a less than ideal situation to begin with. If we look at the kind of the top of featherweight here, you have Volkanovski, who's supposed to fight Max Holloway again. Holloway fell out. Number two, Holloway is number the number one contender. Number two, Brian Ortega, who just lost his title opportunity and in fairly dominant fashion. Number three is Yair Rodriguez, who just lost to Max Holloway and I believe got injured in that fight. Now, obviously not career-ending injury, but he's not available. Number four is the Korean zombie Chan Sung Jung. Number five is Calvin Cater, who had the fight, and had the loss to Holloway. Number six is Josh Emmett, who I think might have been an, in, an interesting option. Seven, Arnold Allen. Eight, Giga Chikadze. Nine, Dan Ige. Ten, Edson Barboza. This is how the top ten rounds out there. Part of the problem is trying to formulate a who-should-be-next argument here when between Volkanovski and Holloway, they've beaten a lot of the top guys already. And some of them are coming off losses. Some of them are just not available. I mean, if Rodriguez was available and healthy, I think the UFC would have gone that way or tried to go that way. Um, they keep wanting to turn Yair Rodriguez into a big deal and getting him a shot at Volkanovski. Granted, again, less than ideal circumstances, but so is all of this. Now... The point I make here by kind of going over this, is Chan Sung Jung the best available option? I don't know. Can you make the argument he's the best available option? Yeah, sure. Can you make an argument for Henry Cejudo jumping the line of featherweights to get a title shot? Believe it or not, you can. It's not an argument I find compelling personally, but... I'm not going to pretend that the argument doesn't exist. You've got a guy who is a former two-division champion, who is healthy and able, which are big considerations to make. Um, you've got a guy who is... 
Uh, he's outsized, but he's also not... Uh, against Volkanovsky in particular, he's not as outsized as he is uh, against other featherweights. Other featherweights would just tower over him. I mean, him the idea of him fighting Max Holloway, for example, is comical in some respects. I mean, the size difference alone is just enormous. But the point there, it you could make an argument in favor of Henry Cejudo, and while I wouldn't find it particularly compelling, it's not without merit. And the UFC seems to have got another way. As I said, they're going with the Korean zombie. And normally, this could be the end of it, right? Bunch of people said, ooh, ooh, me, pick me. The UFC went, uh, you. This happens frequently. And is it's kind of par for the course as far as business goes sometimes. Here's where things get dicey. Henry Cejudo is not terribly happy about this. Now, I don't... I don't blame the man for not being happy about not getting an opportunity. Uh, his his emotional response in that respect is comes from is valid, right? It's not irrational. And he kind of kept beating the drum a little bit, and this mean this meant people asked Dana White about this, because that's kind of what you do. And Dana White said. It's, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, not quoting. Uh, I will quote part of it. Um, no, he, he called the situation, I think, believe he called it ridiculous, and said, Henry Cejudo's not going to jump the line. That's not how this works. And herein, dear listener, you might already be able to see the problem. <laughs> now, Cejudo immediately said something to the effect of, well, it doesn't work unless you've got blonde hair and blue eyes and a French accent, obviously in reference to George St. Pierre, as well as playing the race card just a little bit. Um, and I, There's context to what Cejudo say to the position Cejudo's taking that is being missed by him and is a pretty gross misread of the scenario. So let me... Let me start with this. The UFC owes Henry Cejudo nothing. Absolutely nothing. They do not owe him a title fight at featherweight. They do not. They don't owe him a fight at all. Buddy, you retired. You remember that? Now he's come out afterward. Since then, one of his latest things is, I needed a break. You didn't say you needed a break. You said I'm retiring. Since then, I've gotten married, uh, I've had a kid, and I'm ready to come back and fight. Now, that might all be true. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not in any position to make comments about the man's personal life or emotional state or any of that. I have no idea. Even taking everything he's saying at face value. Again, one, you never said I need a break. You said I need to retire. You said I'm retiring. George St. Pierre was very... Since you brought up GSP, and that's the fairly obvious comparative point to make, GSP never said he was retiring. That was a very important distinction. 
uh, for him, and it can be for the UFC if they want to get persnickety about the specifics of the language. <laughs> persnickety. I don't get to use that word very often. Uh, and it is, however, a relevant point. Um, so it, it does kind of deserve to be mentioned about that. So at this point, the UFC owes Henry Cejudo not a darn thing. That, that needs to be said. They paid him his last... They gave him his last paycheck. And that's it. If you're not an active competitor... If you're active, then they owe you a certain number of fights being offered per year. I forget exactly how many it is, and it might vary from contract to contract. But there are things the UFC owes you when you're an active fighter signed to them. When you're retired, and you said you were retired... They don't owe you anything. Now, you can argue how ethical it is for there not to be, you know, pension plans and whatnot and long-term medical, and y- yada, yada, yada. But, and to be clear, I might even agree with some of those on an ethical or a moral level. Talking purely pragmatically, they don't owe you anything. Not one thing. Now, when it comes to the UFC, Dana White saying that's not how this works is utter hogwash. It works for GSP. You might parachute uh, John Jones into a heavyweight title fight. Uh, you let Randy Couture come out of retirement and fight Tim Sylvia for the heavyweight title. I, I know. I was a fan at the time. <laughs> Remember that fight vividly. Uh, it's still an all-time kind of great performance. Uh you let Henry Cejudo jump the line at bantamweight, right? Like he, he beat T.J. Dillashaw to defend the feather, the flyweight title, and you kind of went, sure, take your take your bantamweight title shot. You let Conor McGregor jump the line at lightweight, and boy, was that a deep line. You just let him go right over that. You let GSP jump the line at middleweight. At a time when there were a couple of very good top contenders, you locked into a circumstance where Michael Bisbing couldn't defend the belt against uh, in a timely fashion and then you booked an interim title fight with Whitaker and then he couldn't fight he couldn't turn around in a timely enough fashion so you got GSP and Bisbing like you lucked into that but you absolutely let GSP parachute over an interim champion like not just contenders legitimate interim champion you let him go over him uh you you let Frankie Edgar parachute into the featherweight title picture after losing the lightweight title to Benson Henderson. He got an immediate title shot at Jose Aldo. Featherweight in the UFC was embryonic. You wanted a bigger name. I'm not saying, I'm not saying there weren't arguments in favor of all of these, given the requisite context. I'm saying, pretending that that isn't how this works is asinine. Here's what Henry Cejudo's kind of missing here. Um, uh, I, I kind of object to him playing the race card when he already benefited from jumping the line in a very, very stacked division, right? Like, he jumped over everyone at bantamweight when that, that has always been stacked. Like, you just leapfrogged everybody there, buddy. You've already benefited from this business practice. But you won't say that you have when trying to contradict the UFC because it makes your case look weaker. So instead, you reference other instances. What's really missing from Cejudo's self-assessment here 
is, to be blunt, star power. You, it's all well and good to say George is a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Canadian. Uh, what? First of all, nobody knew that man had blonde hair for his entire career. Like, he went shaved head all the way. <laughs> like, to the point where seeing him with hair since he's retired is a little bit jarring. Uh, the, Canadi- uh, the accent is immaterial. George St. Pierre sold pay-per-views. Full stop. That's why he got that treatment. Was it fair? No. Screw Robert Whitaker. It, it, it did. Like, straight up. Robert Whitaker got to go down as a champion who did not win the belt from the previous champion. He, his interim title was promoted, and then he never got a successful title defense because his one... The one time he theoretically retained the belt, Yoel Romero missed weight, and then he lost to Israel Adesanya. Like, Whitaker's accolades as champion are screwed and very screwed up because of that decision. There's no argument there. Uh, But Robert Whitaker didn't move a lot of merchandise and he got a little bit injured. And George St. Pierre did move merchandise. He, He sells. Frankie Edgar was a little bit of a never. Frankie Edgar was never a big seller, but he was well known enough that him and Jose Aldo, he was the when he fought Jose Aldo commercially, Edgar was the A side of that, to use that particular analogy. He was the A side. Anyone who knew anything about fighting knew Jose Aldo was the A side, you know, technically. And but we're not talking about that. We're talking purely about commercially. And Frankie Edgar was a more known commodity. Henry Cejudo is just not that big a needle mover. I mean, and that's not to say he's not a good fighter. He's a very good fighter. I might not care all that much, and maybe my perspective will change as I go back through elements of his career and appreciate it more, uh, but you have to call that as it lies, and people, people were excited about the idea of GSP and Michael Bisbing. However misguided us hardcores might have thought it. I don't think people are all that excited for Henry Cejudo. And I might be wrong. I need to... There's data and evidence I would need to look at that I do not have access to at the moment. But that's kind of how I see it. Cejudo's not a big enough star to, coming off of a significant layoff and retirement jump ahead of a bunch of guys at featherweight who have been fighting in the trenches of a very... Featherweight is at no worst the third best division. It's no worse than the third best division in the UFC, if not the world. You're going to leapfrog all of those guys who have been grinding and fighting to get those kind of positions on the basis of never having fought in the division, never even coming close to fighting in the division, Having been retired for what two years? How long has he been? Re- How long ago was that? I need to double check this. Hang on. Um, he retired immediately after the Cruz fight, so May of 2020. So well over a year, closer to two. Uh, you haven't been seen 
in a long time. You have never been seen in that division. Yeah, he debuted at Bantamweight. Uh, yeah, like, I again, I'm not saying you couldn't make a case for Henry Cejudo here, given all the context. I'm saying it's not, de you might find it more persuasive than I do, but there is, it is not demonstrably better than Chan Sung Jung's. What's your argument? Jung lost more recently than Cejudo? He also fought a lot more recently than Cejudo, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I'm going to double check that, actually, now that I'm thinking about it. Uh, I'm 90% sure. Because his last fight was Dan Ige. Yeah, a lot sooner. He's fought twice since Cejudo retired. He's got a long body of work in the division. And, frankly, has probably a... I shouldn't say that. He has a repu he has a better reputation for fan-friendly fights than Cejudo does. I think that's true. Like, there's... <laughs> I, I, the whole situation is significantly less than ideal. Like, under ideal circumstances, you know, we get, we get Holloway and Volkanovski for a third time. I, mean, I wouldn't even necessarily argue that that's ideal, but that's a whole other discussion. Right, as it currently stands at featherweight, those are the two best guys. Their second fight was competitive enough and close enough to maybe make the argument for a third. And since that fight, Holloway has certainly won a couple of important fights that made the case of, that forced the issue. Uh, and most of the other guys who might come in above the Korean Zombie at featherweight are injured or un are unavailable or coming off of uh, you know, their cases are worse than his for any number of reasons be that purely availability or recent history uh, and and Cejudo's just uh, look if Conor McGregor said I'll fight Volkanovski at featherweight would they airdrop him in there 100% would a lot of us uh, look I might not be happy about that either frankly I wouldn't be but at least McGregor has a history and the division, first of all. And second of all, yeah, as a guy who moves more, he's a bigger star. And it might suck in some respects, but, you know, guys who have more star powers tend to get breaks that others don't. And that sucks. That sucks for all of us that don't have big star power. I happily include myself in that particular conversation. Like, I'm... You know, I wish I got a better break with what I do here or any number of other places, but, well, I'm just me, so. <laughs> uh, so Cejudo complaining about, I, I, I just object to him kind of doing the racial, uh, again, he didn't say it's because I'm, you know, Mexican, I, I'm Hispanic. He didn't say that, but he very clearly to use other parlance, he clearly dog-whistled it, right? And I, I I, don't care for that because I find it distasteful unless you have specific evidence that it's true. And frankly, you don't. You've been the beneficiary of this kind of treatment in the past. You're not getting passed over here because... 
you're not be, because you're Hispanic. You're getting passed over here because you've been retired for two years, have no history in the division, and you and the UFC are in a spat. And that last part might suck even more because you'd think that you know you'd like to think that you could put aside those kinds of things for the sake of business. But you know, the UFC is a petty organization. That's been long demonstrated to be true. So, I... I don't have a whole lot else to say about the... Uh, look, if Cejudo... I think he said the Monopoly word. Like, like that was one of his things. You know, this... Uh, the UFC's monop- Something about the UFC's practices and them being a Monopoly. Uh, which is going to get it... Like, that's not going to endear you to the UFC brass, but I, mean, I also don't care. There's a... Ver- I... The UFC is not a monopoly in the traditional sense. They're more a monopsony. And if you're interested in the distinction, uh, John S. Nash has a great video on YouTube that explains, that goes into more detail about uh, what a monopsony, what a monopoly is versus a monopsony, why the UFC falls into some of the categorizations of a monopsony, etc., etc. So if you're interested in that, please go look up that video. I don't have time to go over the details of all of that here. Um, it's just to say that, look, Cejudo's not happy. He and Dana White are going to start going at it. And that might get ugly in a hurry. So we'll half keep an eye on that because it's one of the things we do here. All right. Uh, that's everything I've listed here. Let's check Twitter very briefly, see if there are any questions. Uh, I've been putting up a, a tweet. You can follow me at WinfreeMMA. That's W-I-N-F-R-E-E-M-M-A. And uh, I, I ask, you know, Sunday evenings. If anyone's got a question or a comment, please feel free to leave it. So, I'll go check that, and if nothing, then we will do plugs and get out of here. Alright, nope, doesn't look like anything MMA-related is broken. There's football playoffs going on here, so that's kind of sucking up all the oxygen. Alright, plugs. Last week, I did a Damn You Hollywood for... Uh, last week was, why am I blanking on this? Um, we did a Damien Hollywood for the 355, which is a pretty terrible movie. So, Mark and myself talked about that. We kind of tore it apart. This week, Scream 5, the number one movie in the United States, uh, came out this last Friday. So, Mark and I will be, re- Mark and I and, um, I forget who's joining us, somebody else. Uh, we'll be talking about Scream 5, so be on the lookout for that on Tuesday. Uh, then, oh, I also talked about The Witcher last week. That's what I was thinking about. There's a TV party for season two of The Witcher, so if you want my thoughts on that, myself, uh, Ronnie Adams, and Mark Radlich got together. We talked about Henry Cavill and how awesome he is. So, this week, again, uh, the Damien Hollywood for Scream. I think that's all my podcasting. I don't think I'm on the Hawkeye TV party. Uh, pretty sure not, actually, now that I think about it. Uh, my usual slate of coverage will be live. AEW's Dark Elevation on Monday, MLW on Thursday, WWE SmackDown on Friday, and the UFC on Saturday. So please follow all of that. Those are in the wrestling and MMA zones of 411 Mania, depending on which genre we're talking about. I'll be back next week to review UFC 270. And... I'm going to double check. Yeah, just that. There is no event on the 29th. Uh, so just a review of UFC 270 and, of course, whatever news comes out during that period of time. 
the week after, we'll have a preview for Jack Hermanson and Sean Strickland. That could get wild in a hurry. So come back then, get a review of the big double cha- double header that is UFC 270. Until then, I thank you all very, very much. Uh, please continue to engage with the product. Stay safe out there and continue to be well, be safe, and behave. <laughs>